Well, let's pray. <clears throat> Triune God, as we just sang, you are Redeemer, Healer, Lord Almighty. You are our Savior, our Defender, our King. Lord, we pray that we would now know you even more as our Redeemer, as our Lord, as our Savior, as you've revealed yourself in your Word, as you have revealed yourself in your Gospel, as you've revealed yourself in Christ. Grant us understanding now as we turn to your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. In the aftermath of the Reformation, the light of the gospel was sweeping across Europe. After darkness, light was the intellectual cry of the new Protestants. Following centuries of darkness, of illiteracy, of masses performed in Latin, the darkness was being pushed back as the gospel was preached with new clarity in the language of the people. Light was dawning in France, where Protestants were growing in number and gaining ground politically. Many nobles, princes, and high-ranking officials were Protestants. They were a group called the Huguenots. France was dominated by Catholicism, but was producing Re Reformation leaders who were fighting for religious liberty. Men like Jean Morlet and John Calvin worked for years to see their beloved homeland of France become a place full of thriving gospel-believing churches. But this growing Protestant influence was not met well by the Catholic majority there. In the introduction to Calvin's greatest work, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, he pled with the king of France for religious freedom for these Protestants. Amidst growing persecution, he wrote this to the king. Certainly, our cause lies afflicted, for ungodly men have so far prevailed that Christ's truth, even if it is not driven away, scattered, and destroyed, still lies hidden, buried, and inglorious. The poor little church has either been wasted with cruel slaughter or banished into exile, or so overwhelmed by threats and fears that it dare not even open its mouth. And yet, with their usual rage and madness, the ungodly continue to batter a wall already toppling and to complete the ruin toward which they have been striving. Meanwhile, no one comes forward to defend the church against such furies. It will then be for you, most serene king, not to close your ears or your mind to such just defense, especially when a very great question is at stake, how God's glory may be kept safe on earth how God's truth may retain its place of honor, how Christ's kingdom may be kept in good repair among us. Worthy indeed is this matter of your hearing, worthy of your cognizance, worthy of your royal throne. Indeed, this consideration makes a true king to recognize himself as a minister of God in governing his kingdom. Unfortunately, those words fell on death deaf ears and political and physical conflict came to a head in 1572 when tens of thousands of French Protestants were killed in the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. 
It all began with an assassination of a high-ranking Huguenot official, Gaspard de Calignet. His mutilated body was cast out of his apartment window onto the streets of Paris. His chaplain, Pierre Merlin, in what sounds like a movie, ran and hid in a haystack in a barn for three days. Swords from Catholic soldiers were literally slicing through the hay next to his face. As the violence spread through France, rivers literally ran red with blood. A hundred years later, the Protestant faith was officially outlawed in France, and all religion was basically thrown out the window uh, in, the, in the secular French Revolution. On that fateful day in 1572, the diligent work of the reformers seemed to crumble away. Years of theological work, of political struggle, of church planting, crumbled like a house of cards. What keeps that from happening here at Millwood Baptist Church? What is it that keeps this church from giving in to increasing pressure and persecution from the world around us? Can you imagine this church building being abandoned with weeds growing from the floors, ivy growing up the walls, the windows boarded up? Could you imagine half the church just walking away from Jesus? Do you think that Millwood continues forever by accident? Well, Paul knew that the gospel neither advances nor continues by accident. He traveled over land and sea and faced persecution to bring the good news of the gospel to a region in southern Turkey known as Galatia. Like Calvin, he worked lovingly and patiently, preaching, building up elders, pleading with individuals, teaching in synagogues, uh, debating in public squares in order to establish the gospel to establish gospel-preaching churches much like this one here. So imagine his shock and his sadness when he hears almost as soon as he leaves that someone's pulled the foundation out from under all his hard work. Kids, have you ever been building a, a block tower and one of your siblings maybe comes up and starts looking at you or looking at mom when they start tapping at the bottom of that tower? That's what was happening to Paul. A group of people were coming into the churches and preaching a false gospel. They were messing with the foundation of Paul's message. This message, the gospel, the good news, was being abandoned by the beloved churches that Paul left in Galatia for a false gospel taught by false teachers. Paul's astonished that the Galatians would reject the grace of God. And it should astonish anyone that anyone would turn from the gospel. But it should astonish us all the more that even we ourselves are tempted to do the same. So as we look at the very beginning of Paul's letter to the Galatians this morning, I want us to be astonished that anyone, ourselves included, would turn from the gospel of grace. To keep us from turning away, Paul calls us to know the gospel, to be warned, and to defend the gospel. Those will be our three points this morning if you're following along and taking notes. Uh, Paul calls us to know the gospel, to be warned, because you yourself will be tempted to turn from it, and to defend the gospel. In the very beginning of his letter, 
Paul encourages the reader to know the gospel by writing an introduction that's packed with gospel truth. So let's look again at verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The gospel means good news. But what makes that news so good? What makes it so good that turning from it is astonishing? The answer is its heavenliness. The gospel is from above. We see here that the gospel has a heavenly origin. Look at verse 1. First, Paul calls the Galatians to notice his own authority as coming from heaven. He calls himself an apostle. An apostle was someone who had seen the risen Christ and been commissioned by him to speak authoritatively on Christ's behalf. And Paul points out that his apostleship doesn't have human origins. It has heavenly origins. He's been sent to the Galatians not merely by men, but by God. He's been commissioned by God himself. Here it says that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and the Father, the first person of the Trinity, have sent him. And in Acts 13, we also see that the Spirit is the one who commissions Paul to the Gentiles. The very same power that raised Jesus from the dead has commissioned Paul as an authoritative ambassador. That's a mighty status to boast about. But Paul ultimately isn't concerned about status. He's only concerned about status so that they believe his message. Paul gets no earthly benefit as an apostle. He gets no palace, no parsonage, no prestige. Actually, usually what he gets is suffering. He gets sacrifice. He gets rejection and chains. What his status as an apostle does, however, is validate his message. It validates the gospel. Paul emphasizes his heavenly status to emphasize the heavenly origins of the gospel. The gospel, the good news, is from God from start to finish. From the planning of the gospel in eternity past to the sending of the Son in history to every event that needed to take place to put him on the cross to his raising to the Spirit working in your life to open your eyes. The gospel is from God from start to finish. As Peter says in his second letter, we're not following clever man-made myths, but a heavenly message of grace that's revealed in the person and work of Jesus. The gospel not only has a heavenly origin, it also has heavenly results. The results Paul emphasizes in this greeting, as he does in every letter of his, are grace and peace. While an earthly message would most likely lead to earthly benefits like power, uh, status, wealth, the gospel has heavenly benefits of grace and peace. God gives grace in his gospel, and grace just means unmerited favor. It comes only through Christ. 
John 1.17 says that while the law came through Moses, grace and truth come through Christ Jesus. It's in Christ that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What's the basis for that blessing? Why does God bless us? What have we done to earn the status of sons and daughters who can call God Father? Nothing. God blesses us not because we deserve blessing, but because Christ does. And what accompanies this grace is peace. This also comes as a direct result of Christ's work. Romans 5.1 says that, uh, says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace we have with God is a result of God's initiative, His pardoning work, and we see here that it comes also through Christ. Uh, you were not at peace with God. Man's default position is not peace with God. Each one of us has built up a debt of sin. We've all been storing up God's wrath, His just wrath against sin, the Bible says. Every lie we tell, every evil thought, every word we say that doesn't glorify God that, and doesn't love our neighbor deserves an equal and eternal amount of God's wrath. But God, being rich and mercy and out of love, has canceled that debt by pouring out his wrath on Christ. Every person who repents, who turns from his sin and trusts in Christ, will find Christ to be a perfect Savior. Your record of debt has been nailed to the cross, canceled. That's the basis for the peace that we have with God. God's not brushing our sin under the rug. He doesn't ignore it. He forgives it entirely. If you're in Christ, there is no worry that you will sin one too many times, and that mountain of sin will all of a sudden come tumbling down on you. There's no worry that the next sin that you put in that closet that's stuffed with sin will cause the doors of that closet to burst open and all your mess of a life comes spilling out on you. No, our closets are clean because of Christ. God's dealt with our sin once and for all in him. And that's because the gospel comes with heavenly power. Not only does it have heavenly origins, not only does it have these wonderful heavenly results of grace and peace, it's also attended with heavenly power. Look at verse 4. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. We see here that the gospel has the power not only to deliver us from our sins' punishment, it also has the power to deliver us from this present evil age. That phrase, to deliver us from this present evil age, it doesn't mean that there's a particularly evil time or place that Paul has in mind. It doesn't mean that Jesus will rapture us out of the world. It means that we've been pardoned from the judgment that's coming to this world. We've been given new hearts that no longer follow the prevailing trends of this godless world around us. The world is characterized by rebellion against God, and this can look differently at different times and in different places. But all of us were once in bondage to the very sins that define the world. 
But the good news is that those in Christ are no longer characterized by that sins. The power of the gospel gives us new hearts with new desires that love God's righteous law. Having been forgiven our sins, we now turn from those sins that have been forgiven. The power of the gospel lies not in our ability to deliver ourselves from the world by our own wisdom, by our own effort. The power of the gospel is the fact that sin has been punished and forgiven on the cross. In another letter, in the beginning of Romans, Paul calls the gospel the power of God for salvation for everyone who works, for everyone who is wise. No, for everyone who believes. God's heavenly power is seen in the gospel this way. It delivers people not based on their own strength, wisdom, or goodness. No, it saves the sinful, the weak, the downcast. It saves them by God's power alone. It takes the down and out rebellious people and transforms them, giving them the status of sons and daughters who now imperfectly love and serve the ruler, our God, against whom we once rebelled. Think back to your life before Christ. What's one sin that defined you? Maybe a sin that characterized your life. You may have loved this sin, or you may have hated this sin but felt trapped in it. But now look how God has set you free from that sin. It's been wonderful hearing stories of that as I've been getting to know you this week. Friends, that's the heavenly power of Christ. He alone can free us from the bonds of sin. And praise God for that. If you're sitting here this morning feeling trapped in sin, know that there's hope for you in Christ. If you're in him, he will not leave you in that sin. I would really encourage you to talk to other members in this church about your sin. Have frank conversations. As you talk about sin, you'll hear stories of God's faithfulness to deliver others from those very same sins. Take hope in God's faithfulness and his power. And what's God's purpose in all this heavenly work, in this work of freeing us from sin, of forgiving our sin? The heavenly ends of the gospel is the glory of God. Paul writes that it's done according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever, it says in our passage. The grand end of the gospel is God's glory, not man's. The heavenly gospel displays God's loving will and his glorious grace, not man's wisdom or strength. And that is what gives us peace with God. But that's the gospel that Paul says the Galatians are turning from. That's what they're deserting. This astonishes him, and it ought to astonish us. So as we move on in this morning's passage, uh, be warned, be astonished, because like the Galatians, your nature will tempt you to turn from this gospel of grace. Verses 6 and 7, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort 
the gospel of Christ. I think what astonishes Paul, who understands man's sinful nature more than anyone, perhaps, other than Jesus himself, is that they're turning from the gospel so quickly. Perhaps Paul would have expected the church over time to drift from the gospel. You're going through Revelation right now. You saw that in the early part of the letter of churches that were in danger of doing that very thing. But some believe that this letter was written only a year after Paul left the region. Almost as soon as he gets his foot out the door, he hears a report that these churches are entertaining false teaching. Well, what's the false teaching they're entertaining? Later in this letter, we see that they were entertaining only uh, a few Jewish ceremonies that people were saying you had to do in order to get right with God. Yes, Jesus' work was necessary, they would say, but in order to have to to get peace with God, you have to do something. In order for God to forgive your sins, you had to be circumcised. This seemingly small thing is deadly serious. Paul calls it another gospel, but instantly clarifies and says that it's really no gospel at all because there is no other gospel. There are not many ways to God. There's not one way through Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, and another way through works. There's one way for people to be saved. There's not one way for people who are baptized as babies and another way for people who live in a distant country who were will never hear the gospel. There's one way to forgiveness of sins. And to add any works to that one way ruins the whole thing. It's like mixing a little bit of black paint into a white paint can. It's now a different shade of white. It's now not white at all. It turns it from being all of grace into being all of a transaction. What was a message that had heavenly origins, heavenly power, and a heavenly end now has a human middle added to it. Yes, the gospel starts with God. Yes, it ends with his glory, they would say, because he does most of the work. But now, according to these false teachers, the important factor is whether or not man does something. If this gospel is to work in your life, they would say, you have to be circumcised. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he says that this turns grace into wages. Wages are what you're owed. Grace is given as a gift. If works are added to the gospel, it becomes transactional and is no longer grace but wages. Uh, You don't thank your boss at the end of the week for the paycheck he gives you. That's what you earned. You do, however, kids, thank your parents for the birthday present they give you because that was given by grace, out of love. This turn from grace to works astonishes Paul, and it should astonish us. To hear of another's apostasy should amaze us. But to recognize that that same desire is in each one of our hearts should amaze us all the more. We're all tempted to distort the gospel by adding works. There's something in our fallen human natures that wants credit for our salvation. It's the pattern of mankind throughout church history. From the false teachers here in Galatia to Pelagius in the early church to the Roman Catholic Church, which to this day 
says that if you say you are saved by faith alone, you are cut off from the church, cut off from the grace of God. To Mormons who say that you're saved by grace, after all that you can do. To the prosperity gospel preachers who say that you just need to plant a little seed of faith in order to be blessed by God. To our own hearts, which deep down feel that we have to clean ourselves up in order to come to God. These are all instances of adding works to the gospel, and it should astonish us. But we need to be aware of this tendency if we're going to avoid it. When your conscience is troubled, where do you turn? When you're facing a troubled conscience, where do you turn? The answer might reveal that you're adding works to the gospel. If you feel guilty of sin, if you feel far from God, is your instinct to look to a past decision you've made? Is your instinct to look to all the good you've done in the last week? If your spouse is upset with you, do you immediately think of all the good you did to him or her? Or maybe you avoid the guilty conscience altogether by running to entertainment or to work. If the answer to your troubled conscience is anything but turning to Christ, anything but looking to Him on the cross, but looking to Him at the right hand of God interceding on your behalf, then that's evidence of this tendency in your heart like I know it's in mine. We have to be aware of this tendency to drift from the gospel. Before embarking on a journey, it's helpful to know what obstacles you might come across. Uh, I have a friend, James, who's the most excited person in the world. He's like a puppy. And he loves it when I get excited about the same things that he's excited about. Uh, the problem is, in order to get me excited about plans, he often tells me all the good about them and neglects to tell me the bad. Uh, I was living with James, and uh, he came to me one day, and he told me about an opportunity to help our landlord move. It would take no time. Uh, it'd help us get on his good side. It might save us on rent that month. Um, what I didn't know is that it would take up a whole Saturday, and James wouldn't even be there. He was volunteering me and ditching on the work himself. <laughs> I probably would have had a bit of a different attitude going in if I had known that. Uh, so let's look at three astonishing aspects of our sinful tendency to add works to the gospel from verses 6 and 7, so that we'll be aware of what we'll encounter in our own hearts as we journey through life seeking to remain faithful to this gospel. My hope and prayer is that if we're amazed at these tendencies now, we won't be surprised by them later. First, our tendency to idolatry should amaze us. Our tendency to idolatry ought to amaze us. Paul, after all, equates turning from the gospel with deserting God himself. Look at verse 6. He says we're turning from him, not from only the gospel. God's the one who calls us in grace, and to turn from that grace is to turn from the giver of grace. Turning to a different gospel is idolatry, and we are all tempted to make a God in our own mind after our own image. 
When we add works to the gospel, works of any kind, we're creating a false gospel and a false God that serves us rather than a God who's the ruler of the universe, who's worthy of our worship. There's one way that God saves, and if we're describing a different way of salvation, we're actually describing a different God. If I say, do you know my neighbor Bill, and I know he's a mailman, and you say, sure, I know Bill, but then go on to describe someone with a different occupation, with different hobbies, we should understand that we're talking about a different person. Whenever we distort the gospel of grace, we're guilty of idolatry. We turn from the God of Scripture to a false God. The second thing that should astonish us is our foolishness. We should be astonished by our tendency to idolatry. We should be astonished by our foolishness. Our tendency to want to add works to the gospel is like rejecting a free gift and saying we'd rather work for it. Would you rather receive an estate for free with no strings attached, or would you rather put yourself in debt, make yourself a servant in another person's house, and begin working the rest of your life to purchase your freedom? That's the contrast Paul is setting up here for the rest of the book of Galatians. And only a fool would choose to work for what God is giving for free. The most foolish thing in the world is that we can't ever work enough. It's not even a choice between two viable options. It's a choice between God's grace as a free gift and grace as something that we can never earn. Third, our gullibility should astonish us. Our gullibility should astonish us. We ought to be aware of just how gullible we are. These Galatians aren't being led astray by people coming, asking them to turn from the God of the Bible to Islam. They're not uh, coming to, to preach Satanism, blatantly preaching a false gospel. Now, these false teachers are coming in the name of God and His gospel. So we ought to be aware that we, like the Galatians, are gullible enough to believe that anyone who comes in the name of God is from God, even if they deny key truths about God. Are we ready to believe someone if they come into this church and say, all you need to do to be a Christian is to bow your head and pray this prayer after me or come walking down this aisle? All you have to do to be a Christian is come be baptized today even though you weren't planning on it. Anyone who says becoming a Christian is primarily the result of something you do should make alarm bells go off in our heads. Now, I'm not advocating for a posture of skepticism so that every time someone claims to be a Christian but disagrees over a minor issue, uh, we, we shouldn't view them skeptically. I don't think we should go around thinking that we're the only ones who have it right. But I am saying that there are certain core truths that Christians must hold. But those are the very truths that Satan will assault in the most subtle ways possible. We must keep our guard and not budge on these key issues. Idolatry, foolishness, gullibility. All of us are prone to these faults, and each of them can be disastrous. But it's people who are prone to these sins that God loves and gives 
grace. It's weak and foolish sheep that he gathers together and calls his flock. And amazingly, in divine wisdom, he not only watches over his flock, but equips his flock to defend the gospel. By his spirit, he equips repentant idolaters and sinful fools to glorify him by proclaiming and defending the gospel here on earth. God, in his wisdom and mercy, defends the gospel through the church, through a gathering of, uh, of spirit-indwelt believers like you and like me. Let's read verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said to you before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. We see in this text a little argument for congregationalism. A church that's a congregational church like yours, uh, it just means that the gathered congregation has the authority and the responsibility to bring members in and put members out. The gathered local church has the responsibility of saying, this is the gospel and this person believes it, drawing a line between who's in and who's out. Writing to these Galatian congregations, Paul issues a strong condemnation to anyone that would preach a false gospel. He says, let them be accursed. That means eternally cut off from God. Damned. That's strong language. But I want you to notice two things. First, this strong language is reserved not for his beloved Galatians. Later in the letter, he calls them brothers. The strong language is reserved for anyone who's seeking to trouble his Galatian brothers, anyone seeking to harm them, who are seeking to burden their consciences with works, who are seeking to lead them to eternal ruin. As a loving husband defends his wife, Paul's condemning in love. Second, notice to whom he's writing. If you look way back up in verse 2, we see that Paul's writing to the churches of Galatia. He's not writing to the bishop of Galatia. He's not writing to the elders of the churches of Galatia. He's writing to the churches, to the congregations, to the assemblies of Galatia, to assemblies like you who have gathered, covenanted together, and have taken responsibility for one another. It's to those gathered congregations, he writes, telling them to kick out anyone who preaches a false gospel. This is a command. He says, let them be accursed. Yes, he's saying that if these people are uh, intent on preaching a false gospel, let them be damned. What does that mean for you as the congregation? It means kick them out of the assembly. Have no fellowship with them. Do not tolerate their false preaching. Excommunicate them. Now, they're putting them out of the assembly isn't an act that damns them. It's merely a reflection of an eternal reality. To put someone out of the assembly, which is a little representation of the kingdom of heaven here on earth, is to declare that the way this person is acting 
or speaking is out of step with what Christians believe. And putting someone out of the assembly is hopefully never permanent. The goal, the desire of a church uh, who does this, who enacts church discipline, is that the person who's living or teaching in error would be restored to fellowship. The goal of church discipline is to help keep the gospel clear and to see people in error return to the gospel. So what are a few ways that you as a congregation can practice this and take steps to guard the gospel in your own church? What are a few ways that you as a congregation can practice this and take a few steps to guard the gospel in your own church? First, attend faithfully. Attend all of the regular gatherings from Sunday morning to to members' meetings. In order for the assembly to fulfill this duty, they have to assemble. God, He's given us each Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, to gather, to fellowship, to hear the Word preached. Each Sunday we get to come together and be nourished by the Word and the ordinances. Each Sunday we get to come and display to the world the unity in Christ that comes only through the gospel. So first, attend faithfully. Second, pay attention during sermons. Another easy one. The sermon's the main course of this gathering. It's what Pastor Nathan has worked diligently all week to prepare for your benefit. So perk up and be fed by the well-prepared meals you're being served week after week. Keep your ears peeled for subtle notes of this doctrine and, and hints of that biblical truth. And if something tastes funny, ask. Talk about the sermon with others at lunch. Send an email to your pastor. Send an email first for encouragement but also to ask questions if you didn't understand something in the sermon. The main reason you should be paying attention is to be fed. But another reason is because you as a member, as a gathered congregation, are responsible to ensure that no false teaching is coming from this pulpit. If the elders are, are the steering wheel of the church, guiding the church through the unpaved roads and harsh weather of life as a church, then you, congregation, are the emergency break. If you hear a false gospel being preached, you're to pull that emergency break, confront the pastor, and if necessary, throw him out of the church. Let's pray that that never happens, that it never comes to that point here. But history, not necessarily history of Millwood, but church history in general, it tells us that false teachers can creep into sound churches. So attend faithfully, pay attention to the sermons, and third is know one another. You've covenanted together. You've pledged your love and care for one another. Here in this passage, we see a call for church discipline at its final stages. Ultimately, this is a loving thing to do to cast false teachers out. But what's more important and possibly more loving is to know people well enough to see the warning signs of apostasy long before it reaches that point. A Bible or a book study, a godly conversation, praying with one another through difficult circumstances, these are all ways that we can connect, correct wrong thinking 
that may lead to unbelief long before formal church discipline needs to take place. So seek meaningful relationships in this church. Know and be known. Spend time with brothers and sisters, not because you have a lot in common, but because you have Christ in common, because you've uh, committed yourself to love and because you know that you yourself need the love of this congregation. In 1572, the hopes of a Protestant France were dealt a major blow in the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Were any one of us writing history, it certainly would not have panned out that way. Were we writing history, these false teachers in Galatia would never have shown up to that church. Were we writing history, the many prosperous churches throughout Europe and America and the Middle East and North Africa that once led the Reformation, preached the gospel, produced so many great church leaders, missionaries, and confessions through church history, all these churches would still be standing strong. Their buildings would be filled with thriving congregations who would then go into the halls of their parliament, into their workplaces, and would build just societies. But in God's wisdom, many of these churches are filled with false teachers. Many of the buildings have been turned into apartment complexes. But we have their stories as warnings. And we have small, faithful churches like this one here, like Wernal Road Baptist Church in Kansas City, like Emmanuel Orthodox Presbyterian Church in South Jersey, like the 30-person church in Sweden who's already faithfully planting churches in other Swedish cities where there is literally no gospel-preaching churches for within a two-hour drive. By God's grace and in His wisdom, He's entrusted you church, to know the gospel, to hold fast to the gospel, and to defend the gospel, to guard it for future generations. So let's go to God in prayer as we seek to do that by His power, so that He might be praised and people might be astonished at the grace and glory that's displayed to the world through the local church. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your heavenly nature. Father, we praise you for revealing your heavenly nature in Christ. We praise you that we have heard the gospel, that we have repented and believed. Lord, we pray that we would, as those who have believed, proclaim your gospel to those who have not yet heard so that they might be saved. Lord, we pray that we would know your gospel, and glorify you in our lives, defending it so that future generations may know and lead faithful lives. Lord, we thank you for the gift of the local church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.